I'm Robin Gallagher and welcome to Ripples. Throughout our program, a series of guest speakers will share words of wisdom from their life experience and we will offer you a series of meditations so that you can take some time just to stop and listen to that voice within, that voice of the Spirit. So come and enjoy some inspired voices and treasured stillness and allow the ripple effect to begin. I welcome Paul Field onto our program today. Paul is our special guest in support of Are You OK Day 2021. Paul was the lead singer for The Cockroaches, the manager of The Wiggles for almost 25 years, and more recently has released his first solo album. Paul is married to Pauline and they have five children. In these next two episodes, Paul shares his own story, both his professional career as well as the tragic death of his daughter Bernadette, who died from SIDS when she was eight months old. He speaks about the impact of people checking in on him at critical times and of the value of reconnecting with those things that bring you life. Paul highlights how his music, family, friends and faith have all played such an important part in his well-being. Please note that there are some references to death in this podcast. If you feel uncomfortable or distressed at any point during the episode, please reach out to someone for help, connect with one of the support agencies like Beyond Blue or contact a medical practitioner directly. I warmly welcome Paul today as he shares his moving and authentic story and one that reminds us all of the value of a single conversation and of asking, are you really okay? Well, welcome, Paul, to the program. It is just wonderful to have you with us today. Oh, it's great to be here. This year, the focus for Are You OK Day is Are You Really OK? Yeah. Your career is a remarkable one. And, and for most of your career, you've worked in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And during this time, you've no doubt faced both personal and professional challenges. I wonder if you could share something about what has been the impact of, of people asking you that question. You know, are you, are you really OK? Well, I guess like a lot of people, uh, COVID has been a profound change on the way we do things and how we are. And for me, it was an amazing time because I'd just retired from nearly 25 years working as the manager for the Wiggles. And uh, (laughs) I don't know if my timing was good or bad, but I retired and, and just weeks later, COVID kicked in. And specifically, I'm, um, I'm good mates with Jimmy Barnes, the uh, rock singer, and I've known him for decades. And uh, he's, a, he's a guy, dare I say, that walks the walk as well as talking the talk, you know, yeah. so he's real. And he fair income wants to know how you are. And we do a lot of things together. We socialise predominantly, mm. <laughs> as we have over the years. And uh, That's important uh, too. <laughs> it, it actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're great foodies and... And over the decades, you know, if you want a wild time, hang with Jimmy. Right? Yes. <laughs> but anyway, he's also like a heart of gold. And um, he comes anyway, across so, that way too, very much so. He's very real. Uh, as you see it, that's what he's like. Anyway, we were doing, there was an article that was going in Rolling Stone magazine that he'd written and it was about the group and he was checking on the date that it was going to be, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I was going back and forth and I, I rang Rolling Stone, I spoke to them and then 
I got back to him and um, said, so here's the details and he's great. And here's the punchline. He then went, so how are you going? What's, what's, uh-huh. what's happening in your world? And I thought, oh, do I tell him? And I thought, yeah, why not? You know, so I said, actually, mate, I've retired. And it's like, what? This yeah. is a big news. And then he really just deep dived pretty much instantly. So what are you going to do? Particularly because COVID had hit. Yes. Right? Yes. And I said, well, gee, you know, I, I was going to travel with Pauline, my wife, um, who he knows and loves dearly. Well, that's off. And I was going to perhaps do some writing and, and perhaps also look at doing something using the skills that I've, I've developed yes. over the decades. So whether it's corporate or with whatever it is, but all that was suddenly off the table. And I said, but I'm also, I was looking at doing some recording. So he picked up from there and basically we, we got together and we spoke a lot over the, the, the weeks that followed. And he suggested, you know, like, mate, that's who you are. You're a muser. You love music. You live for music. And he said, the punchline for him, get creative, right? right? And so it was a great suggestion. And if you've read Jimmy's books, you know, it's he's been through a lot. It's kind of a wonder he's alive, which he would say. The salvation with him, I'm not speaking on behalf and going from the books I've read and speaking to him and observing him, you know, his love for his wife and his family, but also now, and, you know, again, he says this himself, he's awake a lot more during the day, right? And so he does so much. He's nonstop. And it's a great example. I mean, in a, in a positive way, you know, singing and creating. And for all of us, you know, it's not necessarily a vocational thing. It's like, uh, you know, if you're recording, it may come out. It may be an album. But it's sometimes good just to do things that are positive and that, that bring you joy and that's kind of a theme uh in my life to be honest and my dad you know showed examples of that but the yeah that's the main thing I think you just you know like go back because that will bring you joy so that that was a big most recent uh, example of someone checking in with me and you know he's a guy that's lost quite a few friends over the decades where being blokes you you at best you might ask that question but you leave it at that Mm-hmm. And same with the responder. Even if there's all these things going on, the only answer is, yeah, I'm fine. So it's good, you know, he's learned. And he's a good example for me as well. In recent times, when I've got mates, friends uh, who have lost a loved one or some seriously ill or whatever it is, and we've got great capability to SMS or email. But here's the example I went, uh, that I've been given. No, ring them. Actually speak to them. There's nothing like the sound of someone's voice. And even if, like in my case, I'm not going to say anything that's helpful or profound or whatever it is, it's more the point of connecting. And and we all know this, you know, where if someone's actually called you, you walk away going, gee, that was good. Yes. It's it's amazing, Paul. I mean, just the power of that that one question that that Jimmy asked, you know, checking in, are you really okay? And then what came from that? Oh, yeah. Few words then to say, you know, be creative. He he really heard you and was able to say, go back to that, those things that give you life. And, yeah. and what, a, what a great friend. What a great yeah. friend. Well, you mentioned your dad. You, you, and yeah. I've heard you speak about your dad on a number of occasions. I know that um, you're one of seven children and you yeah. grew up in Sydney and you speak so highly of your parents. I wonder if you could share something with our listeners about your dad and how he has uh, influenced you over the years. Oh, yeah. Well, Dad passed away over 20 years ago now, but uh, he's still there as far as an influence by, again, by walking the walk. 
right? You know, he was a guy who lived his faith. He was very had a very deep religious faith, but he was a pharmacist by trade, and it was a real vocation for him. What I learned from my my dad and mum, I observed the way they did things, not just spoke about them, but didn't. So dad got a pharmacy in, in Sydney's western suburbs at a time when it was pretty much a housing commission suburb. And this is pre-universal healthcare, and God bless that, yes. because you would see people who were in desperate need of medical attention, they'd often go to dad because they couldn't afford a doctor. Now, he wasn't, you know, the doctor's surgery was literally next door and they were good mates. But if it was that serious, he'd say, mate, you need to go in. But oftentimes... That first point of contact would have been your dad. Yeah, very much so. And then in late 69, um, dad had a a massive coronary, right, a heart attack. And he flatlined, they brought him back. And that changed him in a lot of ways, which we did observe. You never saw him without a smile on his face, which didn't mean, you know, he didn't discipline. Of course he did and all the rest of it. But he was just a happy guy, a real positive guy. And he, he coached our footy teams, ran the parents and friends, ran a pharmacy, did housing on a Friday night. You know, like he did it all. But after his heart attack, he was shaken a lot and uh, really affected by it. But in the good way, he also started to do things that he had not done before. And he used to say, I'm paying the rent for, for living. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's a good expression. Yes. Right? The day. Yeah, he should have gone, really. And God knows what our lives would have been like. I wouldn't be here talking to you about what I've done over the decades. I guarantee you that. And what had changed, you know, that heart attack was 1969. By that stage, and certainly the early 70s, uh, with the Vietnam War and drugs really kicking in in a big way in Australia, he saw it first with kids that he used to weigh on the scales at the pharmacy, suddenly with drug problems, right? And as we know now, it doesn't discriminate. You can be the best parents and your kid can get into it, mm-hmm. right? And it was a lot harder to get in those days, but it was, it was there. So what he did, and this is way before life education and anything, well, he started to lecture in high schools about the use and abuse of drugs. And from a very, you know, it was a, it was a great confluence of a spiritual approach to it, but very realistic. And why I say that is because he would counsel uh, addicts. He would write them references when they were going to court for stealing and for whatever else. Do you know what I mean? The idea of giving someone a second break or a a chance. But even with us, you know, by the time we turned into real rat bags as teenage boys, the girls were always great, but the the guys (laughs) were not so much. But he used to, you know, when you'd mess up or do something profoundly wrong or whatever else, He'd say two things to you. One, don't tell your mother. And two, go easy on yourself. (laughs) And that idea of forgiving and whatever. And, you know, when we get reports from school that weren't great, he was always on our side. He's very forgiving because he had seen kids our age that were good and, you know, just leading normal suburban lives go off the rails. And we, we learned a lot from him about forgiveness and also finding the joy where you know we were mad about music and we got that from our mom and dad and you know when we left school apart from other things we did we formed a band and at a time you know I was 17 16 actually Mm -hmm. um, when we started and I booked us into places like clubs in pubs in King's Cross right and he was nothing but supportive Mm -hmm. so look that was the thing with him 
and mum, but, you know, particularly dad, the support was there. Seriously, no matter what I did, I could it's talk. A constant. Him. Yeah, and it doesn't mean he wouldn't say, hey, mate, you're stuffed up, <laughs> right? It, it, it was, hey, look, you know, and even, you know, there's mental health challenges in our family, and there are times where dad would say, hey, mate, this is beyond me. You need to get help. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a nutshell That's for you. That's so beautiful. I mean, he's evidently someone who was able to name it, but at the same time say, buddy, I'm with you. And that yeah. is just such a, a profound gift, a real yeah. gift. And, and obviously your parents, remarkable people, Paul. Yeah. And Paul, you, you began to allude to it, your, your musical career, obviously. Yeah began in the family and, yeah. and we then launched the, the Cockroaches. And I must admit, um, myself and my, my friends at school were huge fans of, of the Cockroaches and are fans <laughs> of the Cockroaches today. So yeah, can you tell on. us a bit about the Cockroaches, how they came to exist and, and what did you learn during this time? Because you, as you said, you were very young starting out in that world. Yeah, look, when I say we're music fanatics, we are the literal definition of that. We live for it. Mum would say when we were young, learning to play music is as important as learning to read and write, right? And, and she loved to live for playing piano and so on. And so, of course, growing up in Laidle Park at St Bernadette's, mum was asked to come down, despite the fact she had seven children, right, and play. But there's Big a massive, Yeah, like come down, right, you know, and, and, and play and so on. She loved it. And it sounded like we grew up in the 1930s here, but it, it's it's... There was a time in the 60s when we didn't have a television and there's seven rat bags running around in a house and mum would use music as a way of calming us down. She would play music on the stereo, like listen to this, like a wide variety of music, everything from, uh, you know, Camelot, you know, and musical theatre shows, which we loved through her, to the Beatles. And then she would play us songs and we'd either sing along or she'd just play it for us. Anyway, so we, we, we were all taught instruments and then we moved out to Kellyville, actually, on, on acreage there. And we had fantastic family reunions there and big get-togethers. And he would always get us to perform for the other relatives. And my, my dad's sister uh, had, has children who are just so talented, like beautiful singers. They got the gene. They were the talented ones. We were kind of the comic relief, and I'm not being self-deprecating. That is a fact, right? We'd come on and we just like we'd mime the Elvis songs. We'd just make people laugh and ourselves. And eventually, like because Johnny would play guitar and Anthony and so on, we'd do songs. And Dad was kind of funny. He'd be there and we'd be playing something. And if it started to not work or go off the rails, he'd go, okay, that's enough. What's another one? Right, and I got to say, for a band, it was the best education because you kind of got used to a pretty tough crowd, and yeah, yeah, and you need to make an impact. Anyway, as I said to you before, like we played in school. In fact, I should tell you, I went, I went to a boarding school in Sydney, and and we would go to school dances. And in year ten, we had it. We were having a, a school dance in the Villa Maria Hall, otherwise known as the Centre of Rock and Roll in Australia, of course. And uh, anyway. There's a band that existed in my year and they knew I was a Stones fanatic and they said, why don't you and Ed, who was a mate of mine who was a Stones fanatic as well, get up and sing a couple of songs. So, yeah, great. So it's a regular dance, you know, you're struggling to, to, to meet uh, girls, et cetera, et cetera. I get up and sing a couple of songs. I finish the two songs and not one but two girls come up to say good day. It's a great song. Burning, burning Bush moment which said, 
singing in a band is a good thing. <laughs> and so I'm not being high and light, mighty about it. It was just a bit of a revelation for a 15-year-old, right? Anyway, so that's what we started off doing is school kind of gigs, school dances and whatever else. And then very shortly, as I said to you, uh, as a teenager, I booked us into clubs and pubs in the cross, right? And we just started that. And as we left school and, you know, went to college or uni or our friends did, we then started playing uni gigs and college gigs. And we got a good name for being a good live act. Some nights you could do two to three gigs in a night. And I can remember one gig, we come on at one at the Sydney Uni Hall and the band that followed us, so they must have come on, I don't know, the earliest 20 to 2 or 2 in the morning, was in excess, who had just travelled from Perth. And so when we released our album in early 87, we had built up this, this many years of people seeing us and it entered the Sydney charts at number two. Yeah, and look, it was a wild ride, you know, like all the things we'd grown up watching, like Countdown, we got to host it a few times. The magazines that my sisters read, we were in them. The music mags, Rolling Stone, The Duke, and so on, we, we were in them. We got to meet everyone, all the other musos and whatever else. So there's a real community there, and it was a fast ride. And, and again, we just had great success. You know, we went gold, we went platinum, and, you know, it, it kind of lived the dream, you know. And, and to be able to work with a mate from school and two of my brothers and a couple of other friends is a very Australian thing as well. There's a lot of bands like that, from, from the Bee Gees to In Excess to Mental As Anything. There's that bond that's there from the word go. It doesn't mean you don't brawl or have different disagreements, but you're kind of united no matter what. Thank well, you. yeah, and, and and look, seriously, again, just to come back to it, you know, happy days. We were so lucky and to have had kind of ticked the box of every dream we would have had as a teenager doing it. But I'm quite serious when I say, even if we didn't have the success, we just loved doing it. So obviously part of who you are and what brings your yeah. life. And if you're doing yeah. that, that's yeah. that's what's so key, particularly, I imagine, Paul, in those years of your late teens, early 20s, how yeah. pertinent it is to, to be given that opportunity to do something that you really loved with a few mates or, you know, family or brothers. And yeah. and, and that's, that's, that's really significant. And, and Paul, I know that um, as the years went on, you married Pauline and you spoke yeah. about about Pauline and you started a family of your own yeah. and I've heard you also speak about your beautiful daughter Bernadette mm. who so tragically died from SIDS in 1988 sudden infant death syndrome I can only imagine Paul what this time must have been like for you and Pauline I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Bernadette and and some of the things that actually have supported you over over the years and since that time sure you know, it was 33 years ago, but there are times when it was yesterday as far as grief goes. Anyway, we both wanted children. We were both from seven children ourselves, and we just clicked from the word go. And I loved her instantly. Seriously, she is funny, smart, and that was it. So, you know, we married, and this December, we 37 years ago. We'd done it for quite a few years prior to that. She was doing uni and et cetera, et cetera. And we wanted children as soon as we could. So we had Luke and Bernadette was our second child. Beautiful, beautiful, uh, gentle girl. Uh, had a Pauline's brown eyes. And in the seven and a half months she lived, she never had a day of illness. That sounds weird to say, but she was, 
She just wasn't sick. Just a real gentle spirit, you know. She seriously did. Gorgeous. And I was touring North Queensland and Pauline went up to the Hunter Valley where her mum and dad lived and just to visit them. And she had Luke and Bernadette. And in the, again, uh, the days before mobile phones, I'd, you know, as often as I could ring on the landline, see how she's going and check up. And again, by this stage, we'd had great success. So life was good. Life was as good as it could be. I was, you know, married to the love of my life with uh, beautiful children and successful and touring. And uh, it was just great. And anyway, her latest trick, Bernadette's little latest trick, she'd say, ta-ta. So Pauline was nursing her as I was, you know, catching up on things. And uh, she told me that. And so she got her to say over the phone with a soft little baby voice, ta-ta. And, yeah, that was the, the last... I ever heard her voice you know that that was September 1 in 1988 and in the early hours of September 2 she died from cot death it's an interesting thing where you know and I've learned with grief but my dad happened to be on the road with us as I say I don't know how the world works awful things happen wonderful things happen but there are times when people happen to be there at your worst moments uh, or challenging moments and I can't help but see sometimes there's no coincidence there. Anyway, Dad was with me and he got the call and he broke the news to me about Bernadette dying. And what I was spared was what poor Pauline went through was finding her lifeless in a cot, you know, um, you know, racing uh, to the hospital, you know, the, um, and just that image, which she eventually uh, got, hypnotherapy to rid herself mm. of that image. The poor thing, whereas in my case, it was like she'd been kidnapped. I didn't get to say goodbye. <laughs> I mentioned to you before, <laughs> there are times when it's like yesterday. This, this, yeah. As the older I get, you know, the less <laughs> below the surface oh, it is. No, and, really, and, Paul? Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, apologies for those out there. but no, it's, certainly it's, not. And anyway, something I did learn, you know, because I, I, I flew back to Sydney and I went up to where they were and I was actually asked at the time by the, the funeral parlour, would you like to see Bernadette? And, God, I was a kid, right? I was 27 and that question is like, well, no, I don't want to see her dead, mm. right? You know, so I said no at the time. And I did a bit of counselling afterwards, which saved me, I'm sure, both of us actually, and also would read about grief and loss and I went to lectures and so on. And there's a guy called Mal McKissick who's written some wonderful books about grief. And he actually, I went to a lecture and I don't know if I asked him, I can't remember, but I remember him talking about that kind of thing and saying they should rephrase the question uh, or in some ways, and I'm going to get the words wrong, but essentially he said they should say, would you like to, because we know it's helpful. That I've learned, you know, and, I, and and that's a real regret I have. I would have loved just to be with her and it would have been awful as well as necessary to be able to actually say goodbye to her. But, you know, again, a lot of things in life we don't have a choice with. And so she passed away. And that time, that immediate time of, of trauma, I've said this many times because it's true, you feel like you've been thrown off a cliff, mm. like you're, you have no control. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. 
and I'm not being melodramatic. You can see 33 years later, it still affects me. But you don't think you can even survive. And I've got to say, because we had two-year-old Luke, that gave us a reason to get out of bed. Yeah. I had to go back on the road very quickly because we'd cancelled the tour. We'd postponed it, I should say. So that's how I made my living. So I did. I went touring and we continued the tour in northern Queensland. And Pauline got some counselling. You know, someone suggested she did. And as a mother, I totally get that. But no one actually suggested to me that I have counselling because I was a bloke and it's a a mother of the child. And that's a funny thing. Still is a bit to this day, but but certainly 33 years ago where men, I don't know, there's a certain role you're meant to have. I developed pneumonia in tropical Queensland, which, you know, with grief, you can try and and nullify it or stop it or delay it or whatever you cannot and and, you know you can take any drug drink whatever it'll still be there when you wake up or come to and not that i was doing that but i'm just saying it just whack the body holds it yeah you know and so i was literally i still got the scarring on my lungs from it you know i was finding it hard to breathe and i rang up Pauline from a phone booth and just went, I'm a wreck. I need help. And she said, why don't you come see the guy, you know, that I've been seeing? And a guy called Dr. Peter Barr. He'd actually lost a child himself through different reasons, you know, and I don't think that matters. You could still be a great, great grief counsellor. But it did help. And I remember him telling me later, he said, man, when you first came in here, you were cross-armed and angry, which I was. And also, it's interesting, I in, in my ignorance, I thought, you know, you're going to grief counselling, it's all about what happened to Bernadette and what happened to you. Whereas it's your whole life. They take you through everything. And, you know, one thing, I learned so much from that. I work with Red Nose nowadays and I do some work with grieving fathers. That's the big thing I'll say. It, and I know that's not gender specific, but blokes are a little bit less inclined to ask for help. And it really saved me. And I want to say also, as close as I still am to Pauline, we're individuals and we go through it differently. And I guess in life it's the case, but, like, it's one of those things where you are alone in this, you know, even though we love each other and the rest of it. But there'll be days when she would be a wreck and I'd be in inverted commas fine and vice versa. And like I said, (laughs) there I am talking to you guys. Well, it's 33 years later. I'm still a bloody wreck. But oh. but but in some ways, as I often say, you know, it's I also don't want to get to the stage at any point in my life where I'm not affected by her loss. So yeah, as you can tell, it had a profound effect on my life, of course. Absolutely. And and it really, for me, there's there's some really significant things that happen as you as you shared that story too Paul and I and I'm just so grateful because I know that so many of our listeners will really be very moved and impacted by your story but that point where you were able to to ring Pauline and saying and say I'm struggling you know and say I'm struggling and for her then to have you know that's a big and courageous step and for her then to say you know I'm with you and and how about this Oh, yeah. Look, on her behalf, she's awesome. On my behalf, I'm not that smart. I just, it, it's, it's, no, no, seriously, it's just, that's, that's instinct. It was just like, she's my partner and we were in this together. And, 
Look, I, I should point out also, you know, if, if, if there's not of a, enough of an impetus to seek help, but, you know, through the work I've done with and Paul and I have done with Red Nose over the decades, I know that after the death of a child, for whatever reason or in condition, 70% of marriages break up. And I totally get that. I totally understand it. In our case, we just clung to each other, just clung like the couple thrown off a cliff. We had no choice, really. And I've had things said to me, certainly back in those days in Portland particularly, where, gee, you guys are so strong, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. No, we're not. We've got no choice. Had no choice, right? We're not strong, you know, and we were just very lucky and, and, and that's what we did and we sought help and it really did help us. And a lot of that also was, you know, with relationships and various other things in your life that you go through. And that would, Dr. Dr. Peter would would question it, like, why you, why do you do that? Well, because of this reason. Yeah, but what's it doing for you? And it's like, wow, mm. okay. And so we really narrowed our energies and and focus, and we just want to be with people who are positive and it can enrich and. And I don't mean from a selfish point of view, we, we enjoy being with them and so on and, and giving and so on, but you do kind of cut off the things in your life that are not helpful. Paul, you've mentioned a number of things that that supported you during that time, working with a, a counsellor. And uh, and I, I wonder, I know you've spoken um, about your faith as well. How, yeah. How, how did your faith support you? I mean, through that heartbreaking loss and, and perhaps even at other times in your life. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and 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 faith should be like well, my faith anyway. I should say, can I speak on my behalf? Should evolve. So I'm a kid of the '60s, and with the Green Catechism, and lived in the comfort of black and white, the goodies and the baddies. Seriously, you know, and I had comfort in that. And my dad, as I say, did everything for the community, and Mum too. Same thing. She was the secretary of the parents and friends. Played organ at church did flowers and you name it kind of thing, amazing people. But, you know, the same as in my relationship with Pauline. I'd known her since I was a teenager and you'd want to think in that time I've evolved. I don't know if I have. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But the same thing with my relationship with my faith. And there are a couple of wonderful things about it. It's absolutely like my big family. There's a mob of us. We turned up heads turned, right? You know, like there's so many of us. I, I feel safe in community like that, you know, in the family of seven kids. If you haven't a blue with one, then you've got six, you know, five others. And, you know, we're together. And while we would fight like the billio, you know, in those days, the early 60s, you know, I remember walking somewhere with a bunch of us and we got beaten up because we were Catholic, that kind of thing. It was pretty tribal. So there's that element to it. And right and wrong was pretty clear. You know, those level of sins and all those kind of things, which was an interesting concept back then. And again, I've certainly evolved because I've worked with many people who, according to the Green Catechism, are sinners, right? You know what I mean? Like, for whatever reason. And the example of my dad and the people he worked with and helped, I should say, who were good people who happened just to be have a bad habit or ended up in circumstances far less fortunate than us. And you think, God, there but for the grace of God go I. So that was certainly part of my development of my faith where 
it was less black and white. And I was more New Testament version of all this, the forgiveness. And the, just the main punchline for me of my faith is love one another. Specifically to your question and the free falling of us off a cliff, this is where sometimes there's a person that can help you. There's a, a, a priest called Father Paul Glynn, who's a Marist father. Um, his brother Tony did a lot of work with reconciliation after the Second World War in Japan. So again, boy, has he travelled that, that path of forgiveness and, and grief and profound loss. And he was just wonderful. And he got Pauline and I into a chapel one day and spoke about uh, Our Lady and loss and her offering her son up. And I'm not even going to attempt to go into the words he used, but, you know, he certainly said how Bernadette's evolved in, in where she's gone. She's no longer a baby, you know, and she's evolved and she's she's with Our Lady and cared for and the rest of it. And, again, in the wrong hands, that could have been disastrous, but he was able to comfort us. And mm-hmm. I've got to tell you, that in a sense would seem impossible. And for those who have lost someone they love, but particularly your child, there's, it's wrong. It's unnatural. It's not meant to be. It happens in the world, of course. But to be comforted and actually be at peace, even if it's momentarily, and it was, that in itself was a miracle. And, yeah, it was very helpful at the time. And, and he also said about getting involved in the funeral. And, you know, my, our Catholic faith is very much ceremony and acknowledgement of anniversaries of Christ's passing, the resurrection and, you know, events. And Father Paul Glenn said that in the funeral, get involved. So we had, you know, mates, obviously a lot of musicians, there's a lot of music at the funeral. You know, I spoke, of course, at it. I carried her coffin to the graveside. You know, God help me. And uh, so, yeah, it was... Uh, and again, as, as tough as that was, I should be the only one to do that. And it was helpful, right? It was helpful. I, it should be me that does it. And there were prayers around the great side. So in the immediate grief and your wounds are open wounds, open wounds, and you are metaphorically bleeding. And I guess that was a start. And, you know, he's been a great help over the years. And your wounds change. So they're scarred. And they're there. <laughs> I'm not telling you that you don't know, haven't listened to me chat for a while. It's always with you, but that's okay, you know. That's and beautiful. yeah, and look, you know, it, it's there's just that one of those things with part of the stories and, and the examples we've learnt as Catholics is, you know, death is a part of it, sacrifice is a part of it, awful things happen, and good things can come from it. And I, I think that needs to be. That faith part of you needs to be mirrored also with the awful reality. Mm-hmm. You know, again, whatever wisdom, whatever knowledge, whatever thing, good things we've been able to do since her death, and, and that does exist, but I'd give it all away to have us, <laughs> you, know, you know, and, and, uh, and there are times when it doesn't work for you, and that's okay because it's not blind faith. And also, like some of the people I mentioned, like Jimmy, the year after Bernadette died, and in those days, one in 500 babies in Australia died from cot death. Right? It was an awful statistic. Not much was known about it. Not much, you know. And so it wasn't until about 1990 they started a safe sleeping campaign through scientific-based research. Anyway, the year after, I was thinking, man, 
no one knows about this and we need to raise awareness and bucks, right, for this, this little organisation which was formed by mothers who were grieving. And, again, back to community. And so what do I know? Well, I've got music, I've got a lot of mates, I've got a platform. So I threw together a concert and we called it Cradle Rock, boom, boom, and uh, at Selena's, a uh, big venue. And Jimmy was the first guy to say, yes, he'd do it. And he's still a mammoth star. But at the time, like he was selling out entertainment centres, da, 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 da. He had a heart of gold, has a heart of gold. And he was the key that opened the door to a lot of promotion for it. So Triple M would sponsor it. MTV covered it and lots of press. So, yeah, there's a lot of themes with this. And, and certainly over the years with their safe sleeping campaign, and I've been able to assist and with the Wiggles and other mates of mine uh, to help promote it. Since Bernadette died, they've had an 80% reduction in sudden infant death in Australia, right? Extraordinary. Uh, Just I don't know of a campaign that's been that successful. And to put it into real terms, as I only can, that's over 10,000 babies that are or children that are alive now that wouldn't had they not had this campaign. So, yeah. Thank you for joining our program today. Part two of my conversation with Paul Field is now available and is entitled Episode 28, Are You OK Day? Take care and I look forward to being with you next time.